Sun Ridge. We again thank our worship and tech team for that. So, so good. Well, I hope that you're doing well this weekend. Uh, I would be remiss to not mention again and thank Chaplain Benefield for that moment earlier today. Um, so easy for us again to come to these weekends and think we just have a free space tomorrow, a free day to ourselves in the barbecue, but scripture says that we mourn with those who mourn, and when we commemorate the lives of those who have sacrificed on behalf of our freedoms, we remember that they have left behind many, many of you who sit here today, and as we saw in that video, that pain continues to linger, and so we mourn with those who mourn, and we thank those who have sacrificed for us. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad that you would join us in person. If you're watching online and you haven't come yet, come and check us out. My name is Jed. It is an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we're continuing a series called Tenacious Love. And in the last two weeks, we have looked at the tenacious love that you and I can have when we reflect on God's tenacious love towards us and Jesus's words to his disciples that we find in John chapter 15, verse 12. And there he says, I command you to love one another as I have loved you. And the working definition that we've been giving for tenacious love is this, tenacious love holds on when we would rather let go and it reaches toward those we would rather avoid. Now if you hear that definition, there's one word that was repeated two times that's really important and the word is rather. Rather is a pretty important word, is it not? It assumes that there are choices before us and that we are probably inclined or predisposed. We prefer one thing over the other for whatever reason, rather. You guys ever play that game with your family on a road trip or maybe around a campfire service? Would you rather? No? Well, we can play it together right now, so I'm going to give you a few of them. Would you rather have three eyes or three ears? All right, dear. Okay, all right, fair enough. Would you rather go back into the past or see the future but remain in the present? That's tough. That's tough. Here, here's a really hard one. Would you rather be in bed sleeping right now or sitting in your seat? <laughs> huh? Well, you guys, you guys are obviously would rather not lie to me than tell me the truth because... <laughs> I can understand. I would be in bed as well, but I'm grateful that you are here. Rather is a really important word. And often in our lives when it comes to choices, and mind you, you are aware of the fact that we make thousands upon thousands of choices a day. We tend towards the stuff that is most comfortable, the stuff that's easiest, the most expedient, the stuff that we have experienced before, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to our relationships, our capacity to hold on is sordidly challenged because often we are inclined to let go because people and relationships are difficult. It's so much easier to let go. And so this morning we're talking about holding on, but I ought to add a disclaimer to this message because I know that there are many of us who have been in relationships or circumstances where we have, in fact, let go. Maybe we have let go permanently. And 
the hope and heart in this message isn't to shame those of us who have been in circumstances where we have let go because there are many reasons, in fact, that are valid for us to actually let go. There are situations where we are at personal harm. There are situations where we may be enabling another. So I am not here to enforce or impress upon those of us who have been in those situations to not thoughtfully and prayerfully consider whether or not we should let go or to feel validated for those reasons. But what I am speaking to is the fact that for many of us, I would say the majority of us, we tend to let go a little bit preemptively. We tend to give up and forsake what God calls us to because it is so much harder than engaging with what is before us. So here is your first fill in the blank. Loving tenaciously assumes that we have difficult choices to make and hard work in front of us. It assumes it. It's called for. There's hard work to have and put in. When Britt gives me the sermons that I will be doing, or he gives, I've shared before, sometimes he gives me a title. Uh, often what I'll do is I'll go to my notes section, and I'll just start typing away passages of Scripture that have spoken to me over the years that I've memorized that remind me of what I may be speaking toward. And so one of the first passages of Scripture that came to mind comes from Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, where Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The rather there is pretty difficult though, right? Because it would be so much easier for us to live our lives where we continue to feed and satisfy the fleshly human part of us that gets what we want easily, quickly. We're called to freedom and we're given a choice and choice is a powerful thing. So here's what I would submit to you this morning. When it comes to holding on in our relationships, maybe there's actually a lot that we need to let go of. See, when I look at the life of Jesus, when he calls us to something, there is another thing we are intrinsically choosing to forsake, and it's often paradoxical. He says, if you seek to save your life, then lose it for my sake and the gospel. It's in giving up of ourselves that we find what we are actually ironically looking for. So think for a moment about the people or the circumstances in your life that have become taxing on your grip, on your patience, on your hope, on your belief that God can do something better. Oh, what person might be in this room right now? What spouse or, or ex-spouse? What friend or frenemy or now enemy? What coworker or supervisor? Who is it that God may be calling you to hold on to a different way of life and thinking and doing that you are inclined where you would much rather let go because of how tough it's gotten? This morning I've got five ways, five things 
for us to let go of in our choice to hold on to what God, what God has for us. So here's the very first one. Choosing to hold on means that we are determined to let go of pride. That seems pretty straightforward, yes? And how often do we come into these spaces and we hear, oh, all right, someone talking about love, someone talking about pride, I've got it. I don't need to hear that message. I've heard it before. That's basic elementary school stuff. Well, isn't that ironic? That's pretty prideful, isn't it? Because here's the thing about pride. Pride, it, it works like two hands over the years. That's what pride is. You know, one of the ways that I can think about pride is yes as a blindfold. Have you ever seen those exercises where people have blindfolds and they're supposed to manipulate around the course, right? And they can't see where they're going and so they look really, really silly. Pride does that to us. We're the only ones that don't see how ridiculous we are. I know what it's like to be caught up in my pride and I'm sure I look so foolish to the world around me. But I continue to go about it thinking this is just fine. But the way that pride really works, the first way it works is not just covering up what we can see, it's actually pressing our ears and forsaking what is coming in from those around us and stopping to acknowledge that there are other people around us who have things that they need to say and communicate. We know that communication is an incredibly difficult part of all relationships, but when someone actually has the courage or the boldness to share something, how do you and I tend to react in moments of conflict or vulnerability? We want to do this because we have something that we feel they've been doing this to themselves. There's a pathway mentally that I've recited to myself for, for many years. It's love equals learning equals listening. And the reason why I have to constantly recite that pathway to myself is because I'm convinced that if I'm going to love the people around me, then I need to learn first. And if I'm going to learn, then the only way I'm going to do that is to submit to listening. And so when I sit across from people at my desk and they are sharing their stories or where they are, I listen to what they're saying, but I'm hoping to hear something that they're sharing. They will not articulate with words. And I'm not the best at it, but I try and gauge what is really coming through, not just at this level, but coming from here, from the heart. But here's the saddest thing about pride, is I think that I can do that in my office, or in the coffee shops, or in the places where I sit across from you and from others, but what about the people that are nearest to me, like the ones that live at 35833 Abelia Street, my wife and kids, and the others that come into that space, my mother-in-law, Mojo, our high school pastor, people that come to visit. What about them? This morning, Britt asked me how I was feeling about my message, and I said, I'm feeling pretty good, and I said, dang it, Britt, me and Mallory had a big argument on Thursday night. And I was telling Britt that I'm sitting there just with my head in my hands and I'm hearing all the Bible verses that I've memorized over the years that aren't speaking to my sinfulness and my pride. And I'm seeing my wife there who's attempting to get through to me and I'm stonewalling and blocking her off and I'm praying that God would change me. I am struggling in that moment. I will tell you, my friends, if you think that we stand up on this stage telling you things because we've got it figured out, please get that out of your mind, okay? <laughs> We're up here sharing, which assumes we're all sharing it. You don't have to be married to know what it's like to struggle with pride. It's not about marriage. It's about my selfishness. 
It's about our inability to listen. And I'm so grateful that the next morning, Mal and I began to take those steps that we've learned to take over the years. But the only reason why we had to do that was because of my pride, my ridiculousness. Here's the next thing that we need to be determined to let go of if we're going to love tenaciously. It's expectations of immediacy. Do you guys remember dial-up internet? Someone said no. Someone's like, what is that? Uh, if, if you don't know what dial-up internet is, I, I know I'm still really, really young. I am a baby, but I'm starting to understand what it's like to live during times that younger people have no idea we suffered through. And uh, dial-up internet was this thing. It was, it was your internet, and it's unlike today. So when I go to ESPN.com on my phone, and I'm waiting for it to load, I'm like, oh, why is the Wi-Fi, why is the Wi-Fi not working so quickly? I remember, oh my goodness, there was a time when I would sit in front of our computer, and I'd look at this blue screen, and I'd hear these like, like an R2-D2 type of thing, and I would wait, and then it'd say failed connection, and then we'd unplug stuff, and then we would try again. Do you remember that? The funniest thing about dial-up internet is we look at that and go, when are you going to get yourself right? Fix yourself. I mean, there's nothing that we could do. And, and think about our relationships. How often do we look at the people around us like their internet on dial-up? And we're just waiting. We're like, come on, quit making those R2-D2 sounds. You sound ridiculous to me. I can't comprehend what is wrong with you and why you cannot just unplug and fix yourself. And yet, here we are, on the other end, waiting for them to change. I enjoy things being expedient and quick. I'm appreciative of internet being faster, but when it comes to life and the way that God has designed it, we cannot escape that there is an abundance of time that must take place in order for things and people to change. I love playing basketball. And yesterday I went down to Emmanuel Faith, one of my good friends in the church, D. Fatty, David Fatter. He introduced me to a community down there that, that he went to in his college days. And so every now and then, D. Fatty and I will drive down to Emmanuel Faith and play basketball. And yesterday he wasn't able to go, so I went with another one of our young adults, Chris. And when we were there, Dennis, the lead pastor of Emmanuel Faith, whom I love and really respect and appreciate, and, and has really had a, a great impact and voice in my life in the short time that I have known him, he was giving his devotional, and the thing that he said was, uh, every man gets married hoping that his wife doesn't change, and every woman gets married hoping that her husband can change. <laughs> and, and I really love that, because it, it reminded me that actually the first really big argument that Mallory and I had when we were married uh, came uh, in the form of basketball and uh, ABC's The Bachelor falling through, and I'll leave you uh, with, with those details. You can try and figure out what was wrong, but it was, it was my fault. Uh, she told me that night she regretted marrying me, but she should have because uh, there was a lot there on my end. There's so much in us that needs to change. I think about Galatians chapter 6, Verse 7, where Paul writes this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. 
for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Catch this. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. It's not a mistake that just a few lines beforehand, when Paul is talking about being led by the Spirit and the fruit that ought to produce in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and it culminates in self control. If we think we don't play any part in the change, if we are waiting for someone other to do the intensive work, and we ourselves are forgetting that a relationship with God, a relationship with Christ and His saving work isn't about just a moment in the past where we say, great, I've got it now, I've got my ticket to heaven, but in fact, salvation is ongoing deliverance where God is saving and transforming us, not just for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of this world around us who is in desperate need of seeing a better and the true way of living an abundant life, not just something for the future, but here and now, then can we think that any of that will be accomplished waiting for another person, thinking that we've taken the higher road, which, by the way, we ought to dismiss that language because the Jesus, in the Jesus way, there's no higher road for us to take. We go lower. We serve more. So here's a third thing that we ought to forsake and let go of, and it's apathy. Apathy is a really interesting thing to try and let go of because literally it means without feeling. We get to a place in our relationships where understandably after feeling so much hurt and so much pain at the hands of other people, we begin to almost get numb, don't we? Do any of you know what it's like to be so lost of hope? To feel as though there really is no way out, no better way, that there is nothing better that you can do. You have gone to great lengths to try and change yourself, but it's, it's over. And apsy is not a bad word. It's a real word. It's something that every single one of us, at, in life, we will encounter that. We will feel that. But we should know that if we decide to endure and press forward, and submit to this process where God can continue changing us, there's never a good option to just stop engaging with what he's doing. Isn't it James who writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. For you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Is not Paul who writes, For this reason I toil and struggle with all the energy he so powerfully inspires within me? Isn't it Peter who says his divine power has given us all that we need for godliness, so let us make every effort to add to our faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control endurance, and to endurance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love? 
For if these things are yours and are increasing in nature, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to say we know stuff. It's easy to say, I know I need to hold on to this person. It's easy to say, I know I ought not give up. But how much simpler is it for us to say, I've had enough. I can't do it anymore. So here's the next thing that we need to be determined to let go of. It's the past. Again, it sounds so cliche, right? When I was a kid, there was a statement that was perpetuated in Christian circles, and I'm glad we don't say it much anymore. It was forgive and forget. The unfortunate part about forgive and forget is it completely flies against the way that God has designed us as human beings to function. We have brains that remember, thankfully. And so this sentiment that we can just forget or we ought to forget what has taken place in our lives and the hurt that we've been on the receiving end of, that, that's just not valid. It's not helpful. No one benefits from thinking that we can suppress those things. In fact, if we do find a way to suppress those things, they manifest themselves in worse ways. So it's not helpful to say forgive and forget. Really, what I think Christ calls us to, what I see when he teaches is forgive because you remember. You can remember that God is with you the entire time. And not only that, you can remember that you yourself, though you have been on the receiving end of great pain and hurt, you yourself have propagated great pain and hurt to many around you as well. And what we remember is God's forgiveness. What we remember is the fact that he himself continues to pour out grace upon grace to us. And so Jesus, it'll be up on the screens, when at the end of him teaching about praying during the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When's the last time we had that quoted on Sunday morning? Now, here's the deal. I'm not trying to introduce some theology into your worldview that's going to get you all scared about whether or not God's going to forgive you. That's not what is said here. That, that's not the point. The reason why Jesus can say that is because he just modeled a way to pray, a way to think, a way to engage with our Heavenly Father in this exchange of perspective, because that's really what prayer is. Prayer is not just about asking God to change our circumstances. Really, at the heart of what we should be doing when we come before God the Father with prayer is to ask Him to change our perspective and our outlook of how we are looking at those around us so that regardless of what happens, if nothing changes at all, we ourselves are submitting to the process of sanctification and change that He is attempting to do in us. And Jesus had just taught His disciples to say, Forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. And so the question doesn't need to be, will God forgive me? The question is, do I value God's forgiveness? Do I actually believe in the worth and the value and the cost of God choosing over and over and over to forgive me? He has been on the receiving end of my pride and my sin and my hurt, and yet he chooses over and over and over, demonstrated most through Christ's outstretched arms on the cross and up from the grave that I am and you are 
forgiven. So here's, here's where I was thinking about this message. I realized that this is really hard. Do you remember that early would you rather question? Would you rather be in bed sleeping or sitting in your chair? Anyone thinking about changing their answer and being honest now? I mean, come on. I I shared with you earlier how ridiculous is this that I come up on this weekend and I have a great display to my wife of my sinfulness and my pride and my stubbornness that she would be at the mercy of, of my heirs, that I would bring tears to her this weekend, that we would need to cry together to figure out how to work through what God is doing, but that is the redemptive piece. You see, without our contribution of hurt, without our weakness of wanting to let go and choosing to do what we're inclined to do, we don't get to experience God's redemption, the fact that he can turn over and change and take anything that we bring to him. So here's your final fill in the blank. Maybe there are two more, actually. You've got to quit trying apart from Christ. If we think that that we're just going to muster up the strength and the capacity to, to do this well, I can guarantee you, as soon as you and I think that we've got it, we will fall on our face as soon as we think that. And so instead of immersing in that tripping process over and over again, why don't we just out of the gate say, you know what, I can't do this on my own. Isn't it last week where Britt said, when you want to say I can't, what should you say? Help me, God. Help me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me, God. When people come and sit across from me, I have great comfort in pastoral counseling because I can tell them, I don't make any of this up and it's not mine. I cannot take any credit for this. There's nothing new under the sun and it is not my contribution of goodness or knowledge or wisdom. It's not mine. Every single thought of mine, thought of mine that has life to it and has wisdom to it, it doesn't come from me. It comes from the words of Jesus and the word and the words of God that inspire us to a new way of living and thinking. I can't take any credit for that, so why would I in my relationships pragmatically attempt to do things apart from him? And if you are in a position where you're looking at your relationships and the people around you, and you're struggling to figure out how you can hold on or what you can do, I have to ask you first, are you holding on to Christ? Are you holding on to Jesus, the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, the one who pardons the sins of the world, the one, the only one, the only hope that you and I have? Because if we are not clinging to him, and if we haven't committed, if we aren't determined to holding fast to him, then all these other things that I just talked about are for no good. I go to 2 Timothy often in my life. It usually comes up once or twice a year when I start to feel burnt out in ministry, vocational ministry. 
And I start to ask myself, is there something other that I should do? Should I pick another vocational career path? I know that we're all called to be ministers of reconciliation, so I don't need to do this vocationally. I can continue to steward my relationship with Christ and, and be a light in this world away from the church scene. But, but when I start feeling like that, I, I go back to the words of Paul to his friend, Timothy, this young pastor. And Paul says this to him in his second letter to him, chapter 1, verse 3, I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love of self-discipline. When I start feeling like I can't do it, I realize I can't, so I reset by remembering without him, I might as well just give it up. I might as well quit trying. So here's the final film to blank for you. I, you, me, us, we, we have more capacity to hold on because We have not been let go. I will not be let go. You will not be let go. As Levi said earlier when he was leading with our team, it's not about our strength. It's not about just my grip getting super, duper strong so I can show off my forearm muscles. Like, that's that's not what this is. It's about me embracing my limitation and the fact that I will let go. I have. I lose it. And yet, he will not let go of me. So, so check the screens. I want to show you a quick video of our one-year-old before we wrap this thing up. Ready, everybody? You ready? All right, let's go. He said I'm definitely ready. <laughs> he said I'm definitely ready. Yep. Good job. Good job. Baby. I'm awful. Yeah, good job. Yep. Good yep. strong. Good job, baby. Deep breath. Deep breath. I got you. I got you. Good job. Yay, Chewy. More? Good job, buddy. Yeah, you can clap for that little stud. Come on. I hope you don't think I'm like in the garage torturing our children, okay? We've got a pull-up bar back there, a squat rack in, and his two older brothers. So that was true. It, our one-year-old, his two older brothers, Titus and Thad, and they go in there, and they work out with Daddy, and they do pull-ups and, and hangs and stuff. And so when Truett turned one, and he saw us, and he's in a mimetic stage, so he's, he's mimicking everything and wanting to copy, he reached up his arms towards the bar, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. So I, I put him up there. <laughs> like any good dad. Mallory wasn't home at that time. And uh, to my surprise, that little man held on. And, and he loves to hold on. And I don't know if you heard in that video, he's holding on. He actually reaches a point where he's starting to struggle, and he takes a deep breath. He goes, oh, and then he keeps going. And there are other videos that we have, because that's not the only one, uh, where he starts shaking, and he actually he starts mumbling words. I don't know what he's mumbling. It's probably scripture. Um, 
But then he, he continues to hold on. That's what it's about. Not because Truett is safe there by himself, but because he has a dad and a mom and brothers that are right there. I mean, I'm right there. Outside of his, you know, arm popping out of his socket, which hasn't happened yet, I'm right there. He's going to be okay. And when he lets go, because he does, I will catch him. Or Mallory will catch him. One of us will catch our boy. And what will we do? We will cheer him on and clap and encourage him. And did you see what he did after that? What did he do? He reached out his arms again. He said more. You see, here's the deal. You and I are prone to let go because we do not understand what is on the other end of learning to hold on. Paul writes, for this, for we do not lose heart. For the slight and momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. So we look not at what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Right? That outer nature, it's wasting away inwardly. We're being renewed day by day. Something is happening inside of us. My little boy, he has no idea what's being produced in him, but he is holding on because he trusts that he will be okay. My friend, would you trust that God has something for you and for us? If we hold on to him, we hold on to what he has called us to, and we hold on when we want and would rather let go. Let's pray.